You know, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for some time, but we took a break from that to look at just sort of a gospel mini-series leading up to Easter Sunday that will be upon us here in just a couple of weeks. Uh, We titled this gospel mini-series, Hope in Hopelessness, which you saw on the screen behind me just a moment ago, Hope in Hopelessness. And really, that's a pretty big theme of the whole Bible. I mean, the Bible is one long story, and certainly it's a lot of small stories that are scattered throughout the entire book that you may have in front of you, but it's also one very long story of hopelessness turned into an amazing breakthrough story of hope. I mean, apart from the saving work of God, it is a work of hopelessness, is it not? The Bible is a sad book if God does not intervene in a miraculous way. The theme that we often see in the Bible, and in life for that matter, is that God's timing is not our timing. Can anybody attest to that? Yeah. Yeah. God's timing is not our timing, and we know that to be true. I think sometimes we wish that he was on our schedule, right, at times. God, if you could just get on my schedule, my life would be a lot easier. I grew up listening to a lot of hip-hop. You probably didn't expect me to say that after that statement, but I grew up listening to a lot of hip-hop, and there was a rapper named Nas who had a line in one of his songs that said, never on schedule, but always on time. And I was like, yeah, that's God, right? He's never really on our schedule, but he's always on time. I think that certainly applies to God because we can trust his timing because he loves us and all things are in his control. By the way, if he loves us and he's not in control, his love doesn't mean a whole lot. And if he's only in control but doesn't love us, that's really not very good news at all. But the fact that God not only is in control, but also that he loves us unconditionally, man, that's good news. That's good news, is it not? That's really, really good news for us, especially as we consider that God is always on time, even if he's not on our schedule. We saw a good example of that last week when we looked at Noah's Ark, and ChatGPT summarized that for us. I'm not going to do that again, maybe in a long time from now, right? You guys had way too much fun with that. But in Noah's Ark, we saw that, you know, I mentioned that we look at John 3.16, that God so loved the world, but we don't have to wait for three to see that God so loved the world, right? We don't have to wait for that. You can see that in creation. God so loved the world that he made it. God so loved the world even after the fall in Genesis 3 that he planned to redeem it. That's a lot of love, way before John 3.16, right? That he instructed Noah to build. God so loved the world that he instructed Noah to build an ark so that he would save humanity. That's how much God loved people, loved the world. He so loved the world that he was merciful, The hopeless despair of 40 days and 40 nights in a big boat, an ark, on those judgment waters birthed the God so loved, the dawn of God's loving re-creation. That wooden ark was more than a boat. It was God's means of rescue, his means of salvation. And so we can easily segue from that salvation of God and that boat to what we're going to look at today. The Hebrew word for ark is used 28 times in the Old Testament. When I say the word for ark, there's two words for ark. One is ark of the covenant. You see that word, and it's talking about the the big box that God's people carried and said, this is something that God wants us to carry. It's also used as a translation for coffin. The same word used for ark, ark of the covenant, is ark in a coffin. But there's another word that is translated ark in your Bibles. It's translated that way 28 times. Now, 28 times. This is really neat. 26 of those times are in Genesis 6 through 9, talking about Noah's Ark. The other two times, and only two times, the remaining two times, are often translated basket. You may know where I'm going with this. The much smaller wooden box that carried Moses to salvation in water, by the way, in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Moses is the guy that wrote down Noah's Ark, and he's also the guy who's writing his own birth narrative given to him, obviously. I mean, don't you see? Nope, no, no, Moses is hyperlinking the salvation then to his own salvation. It's kind of neat, is it not? Like Noah, despite his salvation, 
Moses was surrounded by the death of many babies, right? Pharaoh's attempted extinction of the Hebrews, targeting infants. And like Noah, Moses was delivered from death in an ark on water as he was drawn out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, he was named Moses, and you may already know this. He was named Moses by the daughter of Pharaoh because it meant to draw out, to draw out. It's a foreshadow. Not only was he drawn out of water, but through God, Moses himself would draw God's people out of slavery in Egypt and their own salvation. There's just so many neat things, layers to see here, segueing between Noah and Moses. You see, in their hopelessness, in slavery in Egypt, God would bring a breakthrough of hope, salvation. Hopelessly, without the power to fight for their own freedom, God brought a hopeful fight in the form of plagues. He didn't need an army, just had his own hand. And when released from that slavery, hopelessly, they were without a guide, no direction. God guides them through a hope-filled pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Hopeless then, in front of the Red Sea with an Egyptian army breathing down their necks, they crossed on dry land when God brought hope, breakthrough in the form of parted waters. And then you see Moses' song of praise right after that. Moses' song of praise on the other side of the Red Sea that he essentially is proclaiming God provides, that God provides hope in hopeless circumstances. But then God led them in the next leg of their journey into the wilderness. That word wilderness is maybe one that you don't have maybe put a finger on as far as defining. Here's what that means. That word wilderness should bring to mind a few things. It should bring to mind a place that is full of desolation, it is uninhabitable. It is scarce. There's just nothing. That's what wilderness is. And for 40 years, these people were in wilderness. Hopelessness, right? Desolation, nothingness. No food, hopeless. Well, what do you think? Based on God's track record, will God be faithful? We just got done singing that, right? He always is. Will God still so love? Today, I want you to know that God has a long track record of reaching those in desperation, desolation, and wilderness. He is a God of care. He is a God of provision. He is a God of healing, and absolutely, he is a God of hope. We just heard that. Bounty in the wilderness. We just sang that just a little while ago. I'm not going to spend our time this morning telling you whether or not God reaches those in despair. He has proven that he does that. I'm going to spend our time this morning talking about how God reaches us at our lowest, and perhaps more importantly, why he reaches us at our lowest. And we're going to do so by looking at those that came before us right here in Exodus 16. We're going to read a couple of verses in just a moment, um, but first I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have a couple of main things that I want you to see as we're looking at bounty in the wilderness. And the first thing that I want you to see, and will be on the screen behind me, is that we can constantly see when we look around God's new morning mercies. Every day, we can see the mercies of God evidently right in front of us. It doesn't take long for us to see these things. God is giving us new morning mercies all the time. We're going to see this by looking at bounty in the wilderness, this Exodus generation. By the way, you know, have you ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt? That's like before I could really read the Bible and understand. I was just like, I'll just watch this, and that's basically the same thing, right? Uh, no. It, the movie makes it sound like they go from Egypt immediately to the Red Sea. It's like just a, like a pool in Pharaoh's backyard kind of thing. And then they're all across it, and then they're like suddenly in the, in the promised land. But check this out. It's two and a half years from the time they leave Egypt to the time they cross the Red Sea. I'm sorry, years, months. Two and a half months from the time they leave Egypt to the time they cross the Red Sea. And think about all the crying babies in two and a half months. 
Think about all the strife and the conflict, all the meals, all the food that is consumed in two and a half months, all the tempers that are flaring in two and a half months. It's a long time to be homeless. Look at verses two and three, chapter 16. It says this, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Basically saying, we're going to die by his hand out here anyway. I wish we would have just died there. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. I guess that's their version of crock pot. I don't know. We sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses and Aaron, have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now again, it's hard to wrap our minds around this, but let's just try They had seen God save in huge ways, but now they were two and a half months homeless, no end in sight. This would last for 40 years, by the way, and now they were without food, without food. They come to this realization where they say, if we had to choose between dying with full bellies versus empty bellies, the choice is easy. You'd probably make the same decision. It's like, I guess I'd rather die full if I'm going to die anyway. And that's kind of the place that they're coming to is that at least we could have died with food in our bellies there than the way that we feel now, empty, famished. Now listen, I'm not defending that state of mind, but try at least as a human being to empathize with it from a human perspective. I think the term for that in our day is hangry, right? That's a combination of hungry and angry. It's hangry. If you haven't heard that, then catch up. Now listen, it's really more than that. It's not just hangry. It's way more than that. It's faithlessness. They grumbled against God. They weren't just grumbling because they were hungry. They were grumbling because they were doubting their provider. They were faithless, grumbling against God. By the way, I say grumbling against God and not grumbling against Moses and Aaron because down in verse 8, the second half, it says, Moses is telling them, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Something here we can identify with is that even despite the proven love and faithfulness and provision of God, the moment can blind us from God's track record. Can anybody testify to that? The moment, the difficulty, it can blind us from God's consistent and proven track record. If you can't see it in yourself, then maybe you can see it in small children. I can see it in my small children. Dad, you never let us have any treats. We never get to have sweets and stuff. And I'm like, son, your tongue is still blue from the cupcake you just inhaled. The moment it's blinding you from my provision for you. The kids are irrational, but in the moment, that is their conclusion. In the moment, the blinding moment, it's grumbling, forgetfulness, forgetting that you or I love them and know what is best for them. Well, we can't just pick on the kids. On a far more serious note, this is us, you guys. It's more like knowing that God is sovereign and good, and we can say those things and sing these songs. God, you are faithful. God, you are faithful. But the moment when it's your loved one on the ventilator, You feel grumbling. You feel despair. You doubt the provision and say, God, I'm questioning you on this one. Because we too are forgetful. Because the moment, it blinds us. But God is merciful toward irrational grumblings. Why? Because he wants his people to know what they tend to often forget. And so, I want to see these new morning mercies as we're going to look at, that there's three little subpoints that I'm going to look at. And the first one, what do we see? What are these mercies? What, are, what is God to, to show us in this? Number one is that he does these things, gives us these mercies that they may know, that you 
may know. Know what? Well, we're going to get there. That you may know. Now listen, a whole lot more can be said about these verses than what I'm about to say because we just got to keep moving forward. And by the way, the service is going to be a little bit longer today because baptism rocked and it's going to rock again in just a little bit, okay? So we're just going to have to deal with it. But there's so much more that can be said about this. We're going to keep it moving forward. Look at verse 4. Then the assembly said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Look down at verses 9 through 12. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, okay, towards the desolation. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them this, he says, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Look at the last part again. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. It doesn't just say, Lord, it's God's proper name. I, I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh, yours. I'm your God. I'm yours, he says. It's a powerful scene that they look out into this desolation, and suddenly this cloud is there, the one that's been guiding them, and it lights up in this powerful way. I mean, how can you even describe that? And then the voice of God cries out to Moses and says, I'm about to do something amazing, and the reason I'm going to do it isn't just to fill you up. It's so that you would know something about me, right? It's not about here. It's that you would know something about me. I'm yours and you're mine. What was God's motivation? I think that there's a mistaken way of reading this. Sort of like we're on this, they're on this road trip with their father. And it's kind of like, you ever go on a road trip with small kids and you just start like chunking snacks into the bag just to say, let's just put off the screaming. Let's put off the, the crying. Let's put off the inevitable. Make this trip a little bit more bearable. Let's shut them up with these goldfish. Like just go throw the gummies back there. They'll just be quiet. That's not what's happening here. God is not throwing them snacks to shut them up on a long journey. He wants them to know something. And it's not just that he's got the snack bag up front and shotgun. God wants them to know something about him. And what is it? That I'm your God. I'm your God. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love, steadfast love is love that persists when it has no business persisting. When people are sinning against love, it still persists. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Amen? Never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We just got done singing about that. You see, when God plagued the Egyptians, this is so neat. When God plagued the Egyptians back toward the, the beginning of Exodus, before these things are taking place, when he plagued them, it was to make them know, it says, that they may know that I am the Lord. That they may know that I'm the Lord. In other words, I'm the master. Pharaoh is not the king of the universe, he's saying. They're going to know who the king of the universe is. That they may know that I am the Lord. He even says, tell them that I am sent you. I want to know who my reputation here. Now listen, when he plagued the Egyptians, it was to make them know that he is the Lord. But when he provides for the Israelites, it is to make them know that he is not the Lord, but he is their God. Do you hear the difference? You hear the difference in the relationship, right? One is that they would know he's the one in control, but the other one is to know that he is the one that nurturingly is in control. You see the difference? He's their God. I don't want to overcomplicate this. The main thing a good father wants to do for his child 
or rather what a good father wants a child to know is not, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. That's not the most important thing a good father can tell his child, right? What is the most important thing a good father wants his child to know? It is the main thing that he loves his child. And even when the child isn't able to see the full picture or doubts the care of the father, the father is trustworthy and is working for their good in all circumstances. Take that in for a moment. A good father wants you to know that he's got you in all circumstances. Paraphrasing John Piper, he once said, God may be up to 10,000 things and yet only allow you to be aware of three of them. But he's your father and he loves you and he's in control. And you can trust that you're just a toddler with limited sight and you have no idea where we're going but you can trust the one who's in control of the journey. Why? Because he wants, you to be, he wants you to know him, that you may know. The second thing is that you may depend. Not just know that he's your God and you're his people, but also that you will depend, that you may depend. <clears throat> We're going to see this in the next few verses. Look down at verse 13. Verse 13 says, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. Just a quick word on that. Quail coming up in the evening was not a regular occurrence. It only happened a couple of times in that 40-year span. It was extremely rare. The thing that was frequent was the manna, and we'll get there. So quail came up and covered the camp that evening. God just simply saying, see? (laughs) In the morning, it says, the dew lay, uh, lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness... Wilderness, remember, desolation, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. 15, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Keep going. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. Hear that as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. 31, on down some. Verse 31 says, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. What was it? It was manna. You ever hear what the word manna means? You think it means bread. No, it doesn't. Literally, the Hebrew word for manna simply means, what is it? (laughs) What is it? I don't know. Let's just call it that. I don't know. What is it? So that's what they did. They called manna. What is it? Because they did not know what it was, and yet it was there, and it was reliable because God was reliable. What is it? It simply was satisfying and fulfilling. It was enough. Quail would be a rarity, an indulgence, not daily, a small handful over 40 years. But manna was literally daily bread. Manna was literally their daily bread. In fact, that's why it was daily. It melted away so that they could remember and say, God said it's going to be there tomorrow. You see the faith in that, right? It's going to be there tomorrow. We trust that God is going to do that again tomorrow. It's not yearly bread. It's daily bread. The same reason that Jesus used this phrase in the Lord's Supper, give us this day our daily bread. Give us which day? This day. This day. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a proverb that really supports this theme. Proverbs 30 Verses 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Hear that again. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? The stomach 
that knows what it is to be empty is the stomach that most desires to be filled. The stomach that knows what it is to be empty is the stomach that most desires to be filled. So I think a word of application here is that we should, we should thank him today and trust him for tomorrow. That's what daily bread means, to thank him for today and to trust him for tomorrow. But I also think there's a warning built into this passage right here for 21st century American Christians, and that is, first of all, that you are rich. You do not lack, and you are not empty. By the world's standards, you do not lack a meal, okay? You don't. You wouldn't be here if you did. You don't lack in the same way that these people in this passage are lacking. And so I think there's a warning here, and that is that we have much, and therefore we need to beware of faithless independence, right? The opposite of dependence on God is independence and thinking, I got this. That's the danger of having a full bank account, is thinking you're the one that put it there. You didn't put it there. God did. We need to breed a lifestyle of dependence on him with gratitude and dependence. These are the mercies that we're to be cognizant of. The third thing is that you may remember, that you may remember, that you may remember. Look down at verse 32, that you may remember. Look what they do with this. This is so interesting. It says, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. An omer is about nine cups, okay? Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. That means keep it. Pass it down, pass it down, pass it down. So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. 35 then says, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable, habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of of Canaan. In other words, Moses said, bottle it up, or God said, bottle it up, that you may never forget. We say that too, right? Never forget. You see like a hashtag, never forget. It may be attached to something like Pearl Harbor, or like 9-11, or maybe like a, a, the devastating uh, tornado that hit um, Tuscaloosa a few years ago. You see it attached to that, or maybe even to the one that just recently, a couple days ago, really did some devastation just up north from us. That word never forget or that phrase never forget, we latch that phrase on for a reason. And it's so that we will not slip into ignorance of what came before us. By the way, if you think about something like 9-11, a lot of you guys weren't even alive then. But our country became very united. We were a United States. How about that? We are the divided states of America at this point, are we not? We're divided people. But that phrase never forget, the reason it latched on to that moment is because you see how united we are, we were saying in 2001. You see how united we all are? Let's stay like this. Let's stay like this. We have forgotten, right? That phrase, though, is there so that we'll say, don't let future generations slip into ignorance of what came before, and they too would eventually become divided over this. They would be faithless. They would forget, despite bottling up. They literally bottled up God's faithfulness. You see that, right? Let's bottle it up so we will remember. Don't make the same mistake of faithless grumbling. He is faithful. That's what that means. And Paul even wrote this. I mean, a couple thousand years later, Paul wrote about the wilderness generation and their faithlessness. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, now these things happen to them. He's talking about Moses and man. He says, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our Instruction for the New Testament church, fellowship, Baptist church, is written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Remembering, remembering. This is what it's about, that you may remember 
The value of testifying, writing down times that God answered prayers, talking about his works with your family. There's value in remembering and saying, no, 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 let's not doubt him. Remember? Why would we doubt in this time of difficulty? Don't you remember the other time that we were without and God provided? There's value in remembering. And so I would just encourage you, as far as application goes, make a habit of testifying to the fact that God is at work in your family in your workplace, testifying in your marriage and saying, man, isn't it amazing that God has brought us through this? Recognizing and saying, we got to remember this. Write it down that you can look back and say, no, I got this journal of victories in Jesus. Look at what he's done. We cannot doubt. He has always got us and we will never want. He provides that you may remember. But y'all be honest for a second. If the sermon ends right there, it's really whack. And I'll tell you why. It's because up until this point, I haven't mentioned the name of Jesus one time. I haven't mentioned the cross one time. I haven't mentioned the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ one time. And any message without the anchor of the gospel is a waste of your time. There's got to be more to the story here, church. If the sermon ends there, it's whack. We've got to keep going. You know the rest of the story, though, right? Forty years is a long time, but it didn't take them near that long to grumble some more, to grow more faithless, more impatient, more disobedient. God provided. It didn't change a thing. They did not remember. And while Moses was out meeting with God on a mountain just a couple of chapters later, he's out meeting with God on a mountain, retrieving the very first Bible. They built golden cows and gave their big pieces, those big pieces of lifeless metal. You know, they gave those golden calves credit for bringing them out of Egypt. These are our gods. They did this. They did it. They're to be praised. See? And comparing themselves to the people around them. That's in the same wretched playbook as sleeping with another man while your husband is at work trying to put food on the table. They had traveled around just about every people group that they passed on their way. They adopted their gods. And their sin may look different, but you and I are no different from them. If we'd have been in that situation, I believe we'd have done the exact same thing. Because that's our flesh, and we struggle. Every day finding new ways to sin against the God who drew us out of slavery to sin. Instead of loving God, we choose love of self, love of entertainment, love of work, love of pleasure, love of sleep, to give our time, money, affection, all the other gods, but the one, the only one thing that doesn't get our money, our time, our affection, as much as the rest of our lives does, is God, the one who actually ever gave us something that will actually last. We struggle to give him anything, and we give everything else everything. What does that sound like? It's only wanderers in the wilderness, faithless people. You see, the message means little if God doesn't do more than fill our bellies. That's what I'm trying to get at. The message means very little if God doesn't do more than simply put a patch on things and fill our bellies. We have a bigger problem than empty bellies, and that is that we come into this world with dead and empty hearts. Every person in this room, apart from the saving, powerful work of Jesus, is dead in their trespasses and sins. And Chris was right when he said it earlier, we do have a relational transgression problem. And we have a holy God who will never pass over the sins of another without punishing sin. The good news of the gospel, though, is that he did, and he does. He not only pardons the iniquity, or the evildoer, but he did it because he poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus. And that's the second thing that we're going to see now in going over to John chapter 6, and that is the bread of eternal life. 
The second thing, the bread of eternal life. Notice, if you take that word eternal out, you get the bread of life, which is where we're going now in John chapter 6. We went through the entire book of John not too long ago, and a lot of you guys weren't here for that. And so uh, we're going to kind of recap one of the things that we looked at, the signs. You know, a story that maybe is familiar to you is that Jesus fed 5,000 people, which was more like 20,000 because it was 5,000 men. He then walked on water across the Sea of Galilee, and these people— Chase after him. I mean, wouldn't you? This guy feeds you five, feeds all this. He's like, let's uh, stick with him. That's what they did. So they crossed over the sea with him. He walked on water to get over to the other side and kind of fled in the night. And so this signs section in the book of John, when you see the signs, you don't just see miracles. There's something bigger than the miracle that is to be seen or understood or believed. That's why it's called signs. Signs point you to things. God did amazing miracles, yes, but there's something to be seen in the miracle. It begins with the same crowd that he had fed catching up with him and asking for another miracle. John 6, verses 25 through 27 say this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the God, God the Father has set his seal. Here's the thing. There's a big difference between seeing signs and seeing miracles. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a big difference between seeing signs and seeing miracles. The miracle was the perishable feast of another meal. It was amazing. Uh, bread from heaven. I mean, literally, fish that was multiplying. It was amazing. The miracle was the perishable feast of another meal. But the sign was the imperishable feast of eternal life, the guy that made it all happen. Jesus wanted them to look beyond their physical need to their true greatest need. He goes on, verses 30 through 35, says this. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? They're interpreting that he's comparing himself to Moses, by the way. That's why they're saying, so what do you do? Moses did all these things. He says, so what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Everyone in this room is either presently or will soon find themselves in the wilderness seeking bounty, seeking provision, seeking God to fill the void. And we have cravings. We see the wilderness of marital strife and we're seeking marital peace. We have the wilderness of unemployment, and we're seeking the craving of employment. We have the, the wilderness of lack of vocational fulfillment, and we're seeking to feel fulfilled in our calling in life. We have the craving of having a healthier physique. I want to be fit. I want to be healthy. And so we're seeking these fitness goals. We have the craving of self-worth, and yet we have, we have the struggle of body image or whatever it may be. And we say, I have this craving. If I could just get that thing, that's my wilderness. We have this wilderness of stress and anxiety and unrest and say, if I could just have rest, it's a wilderness. And I seek the bounty of rest, whether it be physical or mental or emotional or spiritual. And the irony is, 
that to feel so lacking, and all of us do, that burden sure is heavy. That's the great irony. To feel so empty, it sure feels weighty, does it not? And that wilderness, hear the connection, is made up of the same feelings of the Exodus generation's wilderness experience. It's made up of desolation. It's made up of despair. And some of you guys are feeling it. It's made up of discouragement. It's made up of numbness. It's made up of emptiness. It's made up of hopelessness. And again, some of you in this room are feeling it. And others of you may be feeling it tomorrow, this afternoon. And I think if we're just transparent, in those moments of desolation, we think to ourselves, why would God allow this? Why are we struggling to get by paycheck to paycheck if he loves us? Why is my mom the one that's going to die at 60 when that guy's mom is going to die at 99? Why am I the one that's awaiting the test results that are pretty scary when that guy that's lawless has a clean bill of health? Why? Why would God allow this? And I will simply remind you, first of all, that this life is very short. And the things of this earth are fleeting. But perhaps more importantly, I'll remind you of this. Only those who know what it is to be made empty will, do, will know what it is to be made full. Only those who know what it is to be torn down are given real estate for God to rebuild them. Why do you go through hard things? Going back to what we said just a moment ago. It's so that you will run to the one who is your healer. How will you know God as healer if you were never sick? How will you know God is the mender of the broken if you are never yourself broken? 1 Corinthians 10, 11, just to recap that. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. We must cry out to God in our lack. We need to give, give your need to him. He loves his children. Trust his parenting. But remember something, and this is the most important part of this message. Please hear it. That your greatest lack is not bread and water. Your greatest lack is not a job. Your greatest lack is not a relationship on earth. Your greatest lack is not what that person over there has. Your greatest lack is not a big, beautiful, healthy family. Your greatest lack is salvation from sin. And the only way that you can have that remedied is to run wholeheartedly after the person and work of Jesus the Christ. And when we talk about new morning mercies, those same ones that we just mentioned, right, about seeing that we don't stand condemned but at peace, the greatest mercy of your every moment of every day is that you stand forgiven, not condemned, at peace, not in conflict. You talk about knowing that you may know. Why does the gospel happen? That you will know who saved you. Why did God give the man in the wilderness? That they may know. Why does God give you salvation in the greatest despair of sin? That you'll know who gave it to you. It's not about you. As great as we benefit from that, it is not about us. It's that we may know God as our rescuer and give him all the glory and honor and praise. That's why that is so amazing. It's not just that you may know, only that through him and by him these things happen. It's also that you may depend. Guys, salvation is the greatest variable that breeds constant and constant and constant dependence on God, right? I mean, listen, only through him and by him, you didn't buy it, and therefore you cannot lose it. Does anything sound more dependent than that? If God, listen, if you could lose your salvation, you'd have lost it this morning. 
We ultimately depend on the Father for all things, and our salvation is no exemption from that. Praise be unto God. That you may know, that you may depend, and thirdly, that you may remember. Every Lord's Day, you ever wonder why the church gathers on Sunday today instead of the Sabbath of the Old Testament Saturday? We gather on Sundays because the early church said, you know what? We should gather on the same day that Jesus walked out of a grave. And every Sunday that you come in this room, it's a weekly parade that we're walking right behind Jesus out of an empty tomb. Is that worth celebrating? You better believe it is, man. Every time we gather, we're celebrating and remembering that for those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we may never truly die, as Tater said just a few minutes ago. Never. By the way, that's why, as weird as it is, if you're a guest today and you're like, they read their testimony in the water? I know that's weird, but the reason we do that is because there's value in remembering. And the reason I encourage people to do that is because one day, in five years, or 10 years, in 20 years, Caleb will doubt. Caleb will wonder and say, what was in my heart then? Did he really? Did I really? And I can look at that document and say, absolutely I did. Absolutely he did. You know why? Because it's good to remember. It's good to write it down and know that God is faithful. It's good to remember in the value of these written testimonies that there was a day that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you can walk to newness of life. Is it possible that he is teaching you right now in your circumstances in your life, is he teaching you that he is simply enough? That he is your daily bread? That the meal that you most need to lean on and learn to delight in is the feast of mercy that you wake up to each day. That you stumble into this place today and you got a lot of doubt and it's actually pretty well placed because you have never given your life to Jesus truly. That you've played the church game and you've come and you've sat in the seat and you've sang the songs, but never have you nailed down and said, God, I don't know if I were to die today, what would happen to me? Have you ever nailed it down and said, God, I know that what the pastor just said is true and that is that if it's dependent on me or anybody, no one will be in glory. God, I surrender it to you. Save me. If that's you today, that is the feast that you most need to devour. And I pray that you will not leave this place without giving it up, taking up a fork, and getting to eating. Because that offer of salvation is right there, laid out in front of you. And others of us need to understand that if God has met your eternal needs, do you not think that he can and will meet your daily needs? If God has met your, if he's done the greater, will he not do the lesser? Your daily bread, not your indulgent quail, but if he's met your eternal needs, will he not meet your daily needs? If he's done the greater, can he not handle the lesser? Do you trust that he is not just the Lord, but that he is your God? Do you trust that he is not just your God, but that he is your father and he loves his children? What are the links that you would go to that your child would feel and experience and never again doubt your love for them? Would you do that? You probably do that every day. But here's the thing. Is he not a better parent than you? Are his resources unlimited or limited like yours? Is his love not more steadfast than yours? Is he not a better parent? Do you, do you think that you care for your kids better than God can care for you? Even in the wilderness, I assure you that there is bounty to be consumed. And listen, he may not always be on your schedule, but he is always 
on time.